are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Donchmar. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, award-winning volunteer and chapter leadership committee member of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Hi, Cindy. Hello again. This is episode 102 of Lighthearted, slated for February 3rd, 2021. In lighthouse history, on February 3rd, 1918, the Coast Guard cutter Alacrity went aground in the ice a few yards from Little Brewster Island, where Boston Light is located. The boat was soon lying on its side. Keeper Charles Jennings and an assistant keeper used Boston Light's ancient fog cannon to attempt to fire a line to the Alacrity. The attempts failed, so the two men launched a dory, although they feared the ice might close in around them, and they made a daring rescue of the 24 men on the alacrity. Jennings received a commendation from the Secretary of Commerce. It was the last time the fog cannon was ever fired at Boston Light. On February 3, 1894, the American artist Norman Rockwell was born in New York City. He once said, quote, The secret to so many artists living so long is that every painting is a new adventure. So you see, they're always looking ahead to something new and exciting. The secret is not to look back, unquote. We're going to look back for just a moment to remind everyone that today's episode of Lighthearted is the second part of a two-part interview with Richard Cummins, a former lighthouse keeper in Ireland. Cindy, please recap for anyone who didn't hear the first part of the interview. Sure, Jeremy. Richard Cummins is a native of Ireland who now lives in Southern California. For about 10 years, ending in 1989, he worked as a lighthouse keeper in Ireland. Among the stations where he worked was the famous Fastnet Rock Lighthouse. He also was stationed at Hookhead, the oldest operating lighthouse in the world. After his time as a lighthouse keeper, he's worked as a photographer, and his work has been published in National Geographic and other publications. He's also known for the ships and bottles and other nautical models he's built. Thank you, Cindy. Let's listen to part two of the interview with Richard Cummins now. Let's uh, move on to Kish Bank Lighthouse far off uh, the East Coast. It's just a tower. It's a fairly modern tower, I believe. Yes, uh, it's actually located in the center of Dublin Bay, about three and a half, four miles from the Bailey Lighthouse out in the sea. And it is just a tower sitting on, on a sandbank. It's not anchored to the sandbank. Sand it's sheer weight, holds it in position. It's, uh, it's really an architectural wonder. It was um, built like a telescope on the mainland. It was floated out, and then they would flood the lower half, and it would sink onto the sandbank. And there's no rock. So what was it like to live there? It was very similar in ways to the fastnet with the lack of space to walk. But other than that, the interior was very comfortable, very modern. We all had our own bedrooms and they were large bedrooms. Um, a weird thing was the engine room was actually underwater, which is the only lighthouse where the engine room is underwater. And um, it was kind of strange because um, ships came very close to it. So... Mm. You would hear the engines, the ships, and fog being way too close to you. Oof. And original Kish light ship was struck by a ship on occasion, so we were very aware of that. The other big problem we had was the constant fear of fire because there's only one way in and one way out. And being like a tunnel 
But basically, if you get smoke, you choke. So we had oxygen bottles at various levels, and we did regular fire drills and things like that. But if you had to escape, there was nowhere to go. It's jump into the sea if it got really bad. So training for escape was really just to make us feel better. Huh. <laughs> Luckily, it never happened. Yeah, that was probably the biggest fear there. Imagine the place was pretty sturdy in a storm. Yes, it, it was. Um, being the East Coast, you don't get the big seas like you would on the West Coast of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had some pretty big seas, but they wouldn't be half as frightening as the other ones. The sea would never go over the Kish. We'd only get to the first or second level. It, the constant problem we had there was getting water. Because the only place to collect water was from the helipad. And you get so little from that because it's only like the size of three or four cars put together. Right. And it was the only place we could walk was the helicopter pad. And when you stood up there, basically, there was nothing else around you, and you were just out in the middle of the bay. It was a very strange feeling. And you had to be careful. If it got windy, you could be blown off the helipad, and you'd end up in the ocean. <laughs> I was just thinking of a, a general question. You've talked a couple of times about you know the cisterns and collecting rainwater, that kind of thing. But was, especially in times of uh, you know long periods of little or no rain, or maybe that doesn't happen very often, but uh, was water also delivered to these places? Yeah, the places like the Fastnet and the Kish constantly had to get water resupplied from the Irish Lights tender ship because you just couldn't get it with enough rainwater. So you'd order water uh, when you saw your tanks getting low and the ship would come alongside and they would hook up hoses and they would pump you full of water. They'd also do the same with fuel and stuff like that at those times. And on occasion, you know, uh, we had to get a tugboat from Liverpool in England to come across and give us water because the Irish Light ship was in dry dock. There's no no other way of getting anything. You spent time at Ballycotton. And again, <laughs> please correct me if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Ballycotton Lighthouse off the south coast, southeast coast. Uh, am I pronouncing it right? Yes, you're pronouncing it correctly. Okay. I mean, that's how it's spelled, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's how it's pronounced. Uh, it looks like it's pretty much fallen to ruin, and uh, it's on a very high island. From pictures, it doesn't look like it would have been very easy getting on and off of there. And uh, maybe you could say a little bit about that, but and also anything else that's memorable about uh, Ballycotton. Okay, well, to start with, getting on and off Ballycotton was one of the easiest things you could do. You don't get very high seas there. The boat landing is actually very um, sheltered. And there is a bit of a there's a road that leads up to the lighthouse from the boat landing. So and we had um, a little uh, jeep to bring supplies up. So it was actually a very comfortable station. Uh, many guys liked it because you could get on and off pretty easy. You were never delayed. Uh, some guys didn't like it because you're so close to the mainland. At night in the summer, you could hear music coming from the pubs and see people ashore with your binoculars and telescope and it's not good when you're trapped out on an island looking at young girls in the middle of the summer walking up and down the water. So it actually made you feel more isolated than rock stations way off the coast. And right. it also is um, kind of unique in it as a black tower. It's, there's only two of them in Ireland. One is in Slinehead in County Galway and the other is Ballycotton. And a black tower psychologically makes you feel depressed when you're looking at the black color all the time, especially in Irish weather where it's gray and wet a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. What you said about the place looking like it's gone into ruins, it, it isn't actually. It just appears that way because 
after automation, they stopped painting all the white walls around lighthouses in Ireland and the houses and the keepers' houses. Right. Very dirty and unmaintained, but they, they actually still maintain and paint all the actual towers themselves. So it's just, it appears that way. Nowadays, you can actually take tours right up the tower in Ballycotton. Oh. It's a tourist initiative called the Great Lighthouses of Ireland that was developed to open up as many lighthouses as possible for tourism. And if you're lucky enough, one of the tour guides is actually a former keeper called Eddie Fitzgerald, a really nice guy. I visited him out there about two years ago now. It was like I had never left. Yeah. Under that uh, initiative in recent years, were any of the lighthouses converted to overnight accommodations? Yes, there's about five or six of them around the country in the north and south that you can use for overnight accommodation. Uh, there are some that are used as museums and others like Ballycotton are just open to the public during summer months. It's good. It preserves the lighthouses and shows people what the life is like out there. So you were one of the last Irish keepers, I believe, to work with kerosene as the fuel for the, the lights or paraffin, it's called over there. Uh, so what was that like working with that equipment? Yeah, that was on Rathlin Island, which is off the county Antrim coast in Northern Ireland. It's an L-shaped small island, I can't remember the size exactly, but a couple of miles long, about half a mile wide. And there's a lighthouse on each corner, so there's three of them there. One of them's automatic, the other two were manned. The two big ones, Rathlin East and Rathlin West, had the last paraffin vapor lights in Ireland. So that was quite an experience. I spent probably about the best part of a year going back and forth from the east to the west lighthouse. It was very interesting. You got to see what it was like in the old days for olden keepers. Uh, very labor intensive because those paraffin lights needed constant attention. And you would spend your watch, uh, your four hours on duty, up with the light all the time because you had to adjust airflow with ventilation mm. to keep the fan burning. You had to make sure there was enough air pressure to create a vapor out of the liquid paraffin. And because there was a lot of smoke involved with the paraffin, the lenses became filthy, so you'd have to clean them a lot more than you would on a, an electric bulb lens. You had some very large lenses in some of these uh, lighthouses where you worked, uh, large Fresnel lenses. I imagine it must have been hard to keep them clean. Uh, I'm wondering how much time you spent uh, working on those lenses and... Part two of that question, did, did you work with any lenses that rotated on mercury? Well, to answer the first part, um, most lenses in Ireland were first order Fresnel lenses. Um, they were either built in France or England by the Chance Brothers. And in many stations, they had what they'd call a double tier lens. It was basically two first order Fresnel lenses stacked on top of each other. Back in the days when they had paraffin vapor, they would have lights in both of them to increase the um, range of the light to make it stronger. But once they brought in bulbs, they only used the upper tier. Um, that was kind of interesting because two first order lenses and off each other yeah. involved an awful lot of cleaning. <laughs> yeah. It was usually took like three or four hours with three guys to clean them. And the youngest guy would go on the catwalk up high between the two lenses to clean the outer part there. And you'd hold on to a kind of a handle that's built into the, the lantern, and then you'd clean with the other hand. And the young guy always got the tougher job. <laughs> of course. 
Huh. You had to make sure we used to wear boiler suits with no metal buttons and stuff to prevent scratching the glass prisms in the lenses, because that was a big no-no to scratch a lens. You'd get into a lot of trouble for that. If you had a watch, you probably took that off. Yeah, anything that could scratch. And um, then there was another unique lens in the Bailey Lighthouse in Dublin and Holt. It was a clamshell type lens. The guys there made their own homemade scaffolding to clean it because it was such a weird shape and to get up inside of to clean it was quite difficult. Some of these were rotating, probably if not all of them were rotating lenses. Did they rotate on like a mercury bed? Yeah, all of them did. We had mercury in nearly every lighthouse that rotated. In fact, all of them, I think. Yeah, it was a giant bath of mercury. Uh, we never had to top it up or anything. It just was there for a couple of hundred years and still worked. And you could push by hand a 10-ton lens. And you just push it gently and start the lens rotating. Then you turn on a small 12-volt motor, and it would turn away all night on that. Yeah. We never had a problem with the mercury, uh, except for the fastnet. One time there, they got hit by a huge wave, which actually knocked the lens so severely that some of the mercury spilt out of the bath of mercury and ran down the walls. Wow. Uh, it leaked into the food lockers in the kitchen, so when the keepers were taking out their food, you did little beads of mercury wow. out onto the floor. It was like that for months before a hazmat team came out, and they, they were flown out, and they were wearing protective suits, and they vacuumed up all the mercury, and the three of us sat there eating our lunch. You know, What else are you going to do? There, I've heard jokes about wacky wikis, you know, breathing in too much of the, the mercury fumes. I've also heard about the children of lighthouse keepers who would take out handfuls of mercury and play with it because it's such an unusual substance. Well, I never heard of <laughs> – we didn't have children in our lighthouses. Right. But I never heard of anybody playing with the mercury. No, nobody ever did anything with it, so it was uh... – <laughs> it was quite safe, but I mean, there was a lot of things in lighthouses that were actually very bad for you. We had mercury, we had asbestos, we had lead paint. We drank water that was collected from roofs that were painted with lead paint. You know, it's a wonder any of us are saying it all. Yeah. Probably that's why I have no hair left. Well, I don't have that excuse. I don't have any hair left. So. We talked about fog signals earlier, but did most or all of the the stations where you were have fog signals? As far as I recall, most of them did. Uh, there was a few unique ones, like Mizzen Head actually started out life as a fog signal station. There was never a light there. And it had an explosive fog signal, which basically you'd set off like rockets. Uh, you'd make a bomb, for want of a better term, put it on the end of a metal rod, swing it out over the edge of the cliffs, and you'd detonate it. But they removed all of those in the 70s for security reasons because of the civil war in the north of Ireland. And they put in sirens and diaphones wherever they could or electric horns on places like the Fastnet. I understand all the uh, fog signals in Ireland have been deactivated now. Yes, they're all gone, <laughs> unfortunately. Hmm. And unfortunately, they also removed they removed the fog signals and then they removed the big air tanks that went with them. So for historical reasons, you know, a lot of the equipment is missing from lighthouses now. You talked a little bit about uh, birds earlier, gannets, puffins. Uh, I imagine a number of these stations probably had significant bird populations. And you mentioned to me something about monitoring bird colonies. Was that part of your job at some of these places? Well, it wasn't part of our job, but we volunteered to monitor the birds for the bird conservancy agencies uh, because we lived in the middle of the bird colonies, so no better people to keep an eye on them. And sometimes 
common gulls would sort of eat and kill the uh, the young of the more rare birds. So what we used to do is we'd stick pins into the eggs of the gulls to kill their egg. So they'd just sit in a dead egg and the, the gulls wouldn't multiply. Mm. On the orders of the Bird Conservancy. But um, places like Rockabill Island off of County Dublin, that was a very rare tern colony. And they're very aggressive little birds, and they used yeah. to attack us. So you have to wear a hat because they try to peck your head. Yeah, I've so, experienced that yeah, in this country. So the birds and us came to an understanding that we would remove their nests from the walkways and the windowsills if they just stayed off of those things. And it kind of worked okay. <laughs> I'm sure now that it's automatic, they have birds' nests everywhere on the walkways. Right. Yeah, one of the most memorable experiences I had on my tour of Scotland three years ago was a place called Bass Rock, the lighthouse there, uh, southeast coast of Scotland. And uh, there were it's not a very big island, and there were a hundred, about 100,000 nesting gannets on it. It was like completely covered. From shore, it looks like snow, and then you realize the snow is moving around. <laughs> so, boy, did that place smell. Did you have any problems with with noise or smells from the birds in some of these places? Yeah, the Bass Rock now would be very similar to the Bull Rock. It's a huge, big hump of a rock covered in thousands of birds. And the Bull Rock had millions of gannets as well and all sorts of birds, actually. It was fascinating. But the smell in the summer was just unbelievable. It was rancid. And, of course, because it's so many birds, getting water then was difficult because you'd have to leave the roofs get washed by heavy rain for quite a while before it'd be clean enough to drink. Yeah. yeah, it was fascinating to watch the birds. I mean, you could sort of just sit down and the puffins would walk right up next to you and they'd almost sit on your leg. They're very shy little creatures. Yeah. Uh, they're almost comical little things. And when they catch a uh, tiny fish, they line them up in their beak in order. Like there might be five of them and you'll have all the little heads on one side and the tails on the other. And they just sit there waiting for their young to, to feed them. It's they were very gentle little things, but they, they live in the ground. So you had to be careful where you walked because you'd go through the soil and you'd crush mm. them or yeah. fall off the side of the cliff yourself. Yeah. I was also on the Isle of May in Scotland, which has, I think, nearly 100,000 nesting puffins, and I saw some nesting on the ground. Yeah. The, um, Skelligs now has one of the largest gannet populations in the world. I think there's 300,000 gannets there now, or some, something like that. Wow. It's quite amazing out there to see all these birds in the summer. It's also very interesting, and I was into photography, so I was able to take pictures of them. We've talked a little bit about food, but not that much yet. Uh, I imagine you did some fishing, I would, I would guess, at some of these places. But in general, what kind of food did you eat at these light stations? I joined in the 1980s, so we had helicopters, so we brought a lot of fresh food and frozen food with us. But before that, um, the guys in the olden days, they used to eat a lot of salted meat and tin food. Right. Uh, they would fish if possible because fresh fish was always welcome. Some stations had chickens. Uh, places like Ballycotton, they had a large vegetable garden. Places like the Fastnet, you had nothing. <laughs> You'd hardly get fish there. Uh, it was so difficult to get outside. And um, we used to take a month's food supply with us when we were going out in a helicopter. And if you had to stay for another two weeks or another month because somebody else got sick, we had arrangements with supermarkets in the mainland where you'd phone in your food order, they'd pack it up and deliver it to the helicopter pad, and it would be flown out to you. 
But like in the old days, some of the guys suffered terribly from uh, malnutrition and lack of certain vitamins and things like that. And, you know, they some of them would look a lot older than they actually were. It's times where, like, keepers actually starved. Places like the Fastnet and the, and the and the Bull Rock and the Skelligs and those in the winter, you could get trapped out there for weeks without getting off and they'd run out of food and they'd literally be starving. But it sounds like you ate, ate pretty well. Yes, I did. And, um, I mean, I remember old keepers talking about how they used to make bread, but the flour was infested with weevils. I don't know how, if you have those in America, but they're little insects. Yeah, that I know live what in. they are. Ugh. And they used to bake the bread with the weevils in it because it was a source of protein. <laughs> now, I don't think I would ever do that myself, but hunger does strange things to you. <laughs> yeah. Did you fish at these places? Yes, I did. But the problem with being a supernumerary going around the coast is you have to carry everything in your back along with your bedding and all the supplies for you know your clothes. And uh, I used to build models and stuff, so I had tools with me and things. So I couldn't take a fishing rod, but most of the guys who were permanently stationed there, there would be fishing rods at the station. They'd let you use them. But um, a lot of the places you couldn't actually get near the water because there's surrounded by cliffs and there's very little water access. And it was also extremely dangerous. You, you were never sort of encouraged to go on your own fishing or even go near the boat landings on your own because one rogue wave and you would disappear. So we used to sort of go down, the two of us would go down there and you'd inform the guy in charge where you were going to be and what time you expected to be back, just in case anything happened. Uh, before we move on to, uh, you've d done some very interesting things uh, since your days as a lighthouse keeper, but let me just ask you, are there any other particular experiences that stand out for you that we haven't covered yet? Yes, um, one of the most memorable was at the Old Hedekin Sail. It's a lighthouse on a very long finger of rock that sticks out into the ocean. Uh, one morning I came out and there was an old lady just staring out to sea and she was crying and I asked her what was wrong. And um, she told me she had survived the sinking of the Lusitania. It's the first time she had been back there in her whole life. So she was very upset and I took her in. We had a cup of tea and a chat and Afterwards, she went out, she said goodbye, and I never saw her again, but that always stuck with me. Another thing that kind of stuck with me was uh, when you'd pick up mayday calls from yachts and fishing boats that are sinking, and you realize you're their only hope, and you didn't hear their position, or you couldn't get their name or something like that because the message was garbled. Um, that sort of stuff would get to you. And, um, I mean, we dealt with mayday calls from everything from oil tankers in trouble to yachts, fishing boats, all that sort of thing. And we also did weather reporting, which is something that most places or most people don't realize we did. Uh, in Ireland, they used to give the shipping forecast, and in Britain every morning at, at 9 and 12, I think. And they used to give the weather for the fastnet and... Tory Island and very various places like that, but it was the keepers who actually provided that weather reporting for shipping, so, and that was also voluntary. We also used to do uh, keep weather records on the lighthouses uh, every hour on what weather conditions were, and all those records are kept in the Irish Lights head office in Dublin. For any listeners who might not be familiar with the Lusitania, uh Pretty, pretty famous story, but it was a, an ocean liner, I, I believe British ocean liner, that was sunk by a German U-boat 
off the southern coast of Ireland, I think 1915, and uh, about 1,200 people died. So one of the more memorable incidents uh, like that in our in world history, I would say. Uh, earlier we talked a bit about how uh, in modern day some of the Irish lighthouses have been turned into museums. Some of them have uh, overnight accommodations. Just wondering if you have any feelings uh, about that in general. Yeah, preserving our maritime heritage is quite important to me personally. Automatic lighthouses have the tendency to be neglected and many of the buildings fall down because they're not being used. So I actually think using them for overnight accommodation, museums or hotels or any use, as long as it preserves the property, is a good idea. I mean, for example, Hookhead in Ireland has become one of the top 10 destinations in the country for tourists. Whereas before they opened up the visitor center there, no, very few people had actually heard of it or even visited the place. So I think anything that preserves the buildings and stops it falling into ruins is okay by me. After your lighthouse keeping days, you've had a, a very successful career as a photographer. And you, you mentioned taking pictures at, at, at least one of the lighthouses. You mentioned that earlier. But uh, when did your interest in photography start? Was that before you were a keeper or did it start when you were at these places? It was actually while I was in my training phase and we were... Six of us were sent to the Bull Rock uh, to gain experience. And I wanted to show my family and friends where I was working because they were absolutely amazing places. So I bought a point-and-shoot camera, and that led to me having a lifelong love affair with photography. Uh, I later bought an SLR camera, started to take more and more pictures of lighthouses and birds. And my first published picture actually was the cover of a book about Irish lighthouses, by a man named Bill Long, who researched Irish lighthouses in the 80s. And when I came to America after automation, I won a National Geographic contest, and that led to an interview, which led to some more publications. And after about two years, I was doing photography full-time. Traveled all around the world, taking pictures of mostly cities and architecture, tourist destinations, and as many lighthouses as I could fit in. Yeah. Uh, that turned into a career, so. That's fantastic. Is there any uh, online, any place online where people can see your photographs? Yes, um, uh, alamy.com, A-L-A-M-Y.com. Uh, they have a lot of my pictures. If you just go to the advanced search there and in the contributor box, type in my name and you'll see thousands and thousands of pictures. In addition to photography, there's another area that you've uh, become quite accomplished and, and well-known uh, for doing. That is uh, creating ships and bottles and other models as well. Is that something that started you know, when you were at the lighthouses? Yes, it was uh, a hobby that a lot of lighthouse keepers did because it didn't take up a lot of space and you could do it while you were actually on duty. I saw my first ship in a bottle being made uh, by a, a guy called Ray Wickham, a keeper on Tusker Rock. And he kindly showed me how to do it and answered all my stupid questions. <laughs> and I started making them, and I made quite a lot of them when I was a keeper. When I left, I stopped making them because I had to make a living. And um, I retired recently when I was 55, to early retirement. And I got bored, and my wife told me to go and finish the ones that hadn't been finished 30 years ago. And in the last two years, I've probably made about 100, maybe 120 ships and bottles. 
I usually donate them to lighthouse and maritime museums. I sell a few of them as well. But, um, I also make large model ships. I had a couple of them that I'd brought from Mizzenhead when I left the job. They weren't finished. They were in a box. Brought all the way from Ireland, sat in, sat in the attic for 30 years in Southern California. Then I pulled them out and I finished them not too long ago. I've seen some of your work on Facebook. Uh, Facebook is probably the best place because um, it's just my Facebook page is just full of posts about lighthouses, pictures of ships and bottles and model ships. It's all lighthouse related. So if you're interested in that, you'd probably find it pretty interesting. You mentioned that ships and bottles and other model making was a pretty common thing with uh, lighthouse keepers in general. Anything else uh, that were popular hobbies that keepers did? Some of the keepers are very artistic and creative, and you had to have a hobby to pass the time. If you didn't have a hobby, you kind of went nuts. Uh, we didn't have TV and didn't have good stations. We only had one station in most lighthouses, and I was only for a couple of hours a day. So having something to do passed the time. But guys did everything from they built furniture, they made model ships, uh, painting, ships and bottles, fishing, bird watching was a popular pastime, uh, writing, playing music, making musical instruments. And one particular guy spent a lot of time on ham radio. There was one one other thing um, related to birds. Um, when we were on the Tusker Rock off the Wexford coast, there was some very rare birds would fly into the lens at night and they were attracted by the, the bright light and they would knock themselves out and you come out in the morning around the base of the tower and it'd be full of all these birds. Some of them did, some of them not. But we used to collect the bodies, put them in plastic bags in the deep freeze and then we would ship them to the university to be studied. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I've heard about that happening at quite a few lighthouses. In fact, somebody I just interviewed talked about uh, Halfway Rock Lighthouse, which is pretty far out uh, off uh, Portland, Maine. A sea duck one time flew right through the glass in the lantern, through that thick plate glass in the uh, lantern room of the lighthouse, and luckily didn't damage the Fresnel lens, but was found on the, the floor of the, the lantern in the morning. You were a keeper until the late 80s, and there weren't staffed stations in Ireland for very long after that. I'm just wondering how aware you were that you were kind of one of a dying breed at that time. When I joined the inspector who was interviewing me, he told me it probably wouldn't be a job, a lifetime career. Uh, but I was 18 years of age and all I wanted to be was a lighthouse keeper. So I basically tuned that out and didn't listen to him. <laughs> so it was kind of shocking later on to realize I was going to lose my job. But, um, you know, that was life. I want to ask you two final questions for bonus points. Looking back at your lighthouse keeping career, what was the worst thing about it? Oh, that's, um, to me, there was nothing bad. Being a lighthouse keeper was more like a vocation, uh, not a job. And the only downside I would think was automation. I wish it had never happened. What was the best thing about being a lighthouse keeper? Well, I suppose um, I got to work in all these architectural masterpieces like the fastness and located in some of the most remote and beautiful parts of the Irish landscape. I got to fly in helicopters out to these places, which is fantastic. I got paid basically to live my dreams, and I loved every minute of it, and I'd go back to it today if I could. 
when I talked to you on the phone uh, whenever a month or so ago, I, I knew that this would be a fascinating uh, interview for the podcast. And it, I was I was right about that. I'm sure that people will find this this really, really interesting. Uh, you're the first uh, Irish lighthouse keeper I've, I've interviewed for the podcast. And, uh, I, you know, I just enjoy hearing about this so much. And you were at some of the most spectacular lighthouses in the world. So, uh, Richard Cummins, I just want to thank you so much for spending time with me. And uh, I hope people will check out your uh, maybe some of your uh, photography and uh, model making online, which is also fantastic. So, again, uh, thank you, Richard. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Jeremy. It was a pleasure. You can see Richard's photographic work online at art.com and many other websites. And you can see his ships and bottles on his Facebook page. It was a real pleasure speaking with Richard. I always love hearing the first-hand experiences of lighthouse keepers in this country and in others. Our next episode, which is number 103, will feature an interview with the renowned photographer Pete Larrow. Right. That episode will be released on Monday, February 8th. Jeff Gales, the executive director of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, also took part in the interview with Pete Larrow. Many thanks to everyone connected to the U.S. Lighthouse Society and its chapters and affiliates. Check out uslhs.org to learn more about everything the Society offers, including domestic and international tours, the Lighthouse Passport Program, the Lighthouse Research Catalog, and much more. Donations to the Society make this podcast possible. And speaking of Jeff Gales, I just want to thank him for all the support he's given this podcast since it started in June 2019. Also, check out the U.S. Lighthouse Society's social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as the Society's YouTube channel. And there's also the news blog at news.uslhs.org. You can see background information and photos related to each episode of this podcast on the news blog, along with the Lighthouse News of the Week, which is posted every Friday. And speaking of the social media related to this podcast, I want to thank Kenya Almond, who is a volunteer who helps publicize uh, this podcast on Instagram. And she's faithfully been promoting every episode for quite a while now. And uh, we really appreciate what Kenya does. The American author and philosopher Vernon Howard once said, quote, is the beam from a lighthouse affected by howling wind and rain? It remains perfectly steadfast and unaffected by the storm. Your true self is like that. Nothing can ever harm you once you are consciously aware that it is so, unquote. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine